Welcome to Telltales, an investing podcast hosted by Hunt Lawrence and Mike Nicoletti. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you. Oil is doing okay. I think commodities generally are concerned our markets are impacted by concern about a slowdown in China, uh, the whole Evergrande situation where they owe, owe $300 billion at least and are having trouble uh, making interest payments. Uh, they're not state-owned, so apparently they, uh, they won't be a candidate for the, uh, the central bank, Chinese central bank, to come to their rescue. Um, the, uh, that certainly had an impact on things like copper and iron ore. Not met coal yet. I'll come back to that. I think it has had a slight negative impact on oil, but um, the uh, I think the positive uh, impact on oil has been kind of a flattening out in most areas of uh, the Delta virus. Certainly. On a national basis, uh, we are, our cases are headed down and our hospitalizations are maybe not headed down, but flat. Um, and, uh, I think the expectation is that that is happening in China, um, and has happened in India and that it won't have as much impact on oil demand as might have been expected projected uh, a month ago. So oil seems in pretty healthy shape. Natural gas uh, has gone up even more in Europe and Asia. Uh, LNG is trading in the mid to high 20s. Uh, Asia generally trades about $2 higher than Europe because of transportation logistics. I think it's become clear that the Russians are withholding gas to Western Europe. I think their logic is political. There is a uh, pipeline that's been built down through the Baltic called Nord Stream, and they want, that's more or less completed. They want it put into operation. I think the European community and Germany is inclined to look for a trade where um, gas now to Europe largely goes through the Ukraine, and that's an important source of revenue to the Ukraine. Uh, and I think they're trying to stick up for the Ukrainians, and the Russians are saying, well, that's fine, but uh, maybe we won't fill up our storage field, which to date they haven't done. There's a pipeline that comes through Poland called the Amal Pipeline. They haven't nominated any gas on that after October. So it's really kind of a a uh, kind of a stare down European Union versus Russia, um, and uh, I don't think at this point uh, Russia is going to uh, uh, do anything other than what they're doing. Uh, so natural gas prices uh, and electricity prices are going to continue to increase in Europe. Um, 
and uh, there's an election going on or finding a successor to Angela Merkel going on in Germany. So while the election, while that's going on, it's pretty hard for the Germans to do anything. Uh, so uh, one thing I will say is that in in our country, natural gas is trading at you know over five dollars for the near month, but when you get out to twenty three, it gets down to three dollars. It's inconceivable that we would have these very high LNG prices. I mean, a normalized LNG price with U.S. gas at three dollars would be around seven or eight, um, and uh, in Europe maybe a buck or buck and a half higher. In Asia, um, those prices don't seem likely anytime soon. So a good question is, will that $3 price in 23 come up? Now, that is a futures price that's determined by people wanting to sell their gas forward. At this point, since debt has been reduced, most of the U.S. public trade gas companies are Marcellus companies, EQT, Antero, um, uh, Cabot, uh, um, Southwestern uh, range, CNX. Uh, there was Vine, but Vine has been uh, acquired by Chesapeake. Chesapeake come out of reorganization. Uh, they actually produce more gas in Pennsylvania than Cabot does, but I don't think it's the same quality production. Um, but those are the gas names. Those gas names are all reducing their debt. Um, I kind of suspect that the management of those companies, we own a big chunk at Southwestern because we merged Indigo in, and we still have, for us, a significant position in Antero, which you know we helped start. I just can't imagine that those management um, are going to want to hurry up and sell gas forward at $3.23. So I'm anticipating that if these higher gas prices are maintained in the near months, that 23 price will begin to come up. I think if you want to relate uh, gas equities, which as I say are almost all Marcellus companies now that Vine is kind of tied into Chesapeake, CHK, uh, I think they'll respond. In other words, if that, that 23 price came from $3 up to 4 4 and a half, you know, more reasonable backwardation, that make, would make a huge difference in those stock prices. Now, I'm not predicting it's going to happen, but uh, I think it'll be very hard for uh, CEOs and CFOs and boards to authorize uh, forward sales at $3. Um, I do think that the European gas situation is normally Asia leads Europe, but I think because of this dispute between the Russians and the European community, or, or Russians trying to bring pressure to get that North Stream line uh, in, uh, in operation, um, that's, that's, that's not supply-demand, if we think about it. That's global, uh, you know, those are, those, are, those are disputes between governments. Just a word on, on Metcoal to show what can happen. Uh, the Australian government, and for political reasons, um, uh, to gain political support in Australia takes the position that it's likely or fair likelihood that the uh, virus COVID came out of that Wuhan lab and uh, didn't come from an uh, animal. And uh, the Chinese are just outraged by someone uh, 
holding that position. They can't afford to, to boycott uh, Australian iron ore. But what they did is they put a boycott on Australian metal. Now, in Australia, there is no steelmaking facility. They import all their, well, they may have some electric arc furnaces, but most of their steel, blast furnace, well, all their blast furnace steel they import. They do produce a lot of iron ore and a lot of met coal. And, uh, the long, and iron ore went very high. Now iron ore has come down. Met coal, uh, for the longest time, the index is U.S. dollars per metric ton on a ship in an export port in Australia. It was hanging at 100. Now it's 350 or something. I think what happened, it took a while for the trade, uh, the, the people in the business of importing met coal and producing it and shipping it to rearrange things so that the Australian coal went to blast furnaces in Japan, Korea, India, not to China. And then actually U.S. met coal, uh, there's about 70 million tons produced in the U.S., about 50 million tons for export. That export normally goes to Europe and Brazil because that's the logistics. Now it's being loaded on ships in our two ports in Baltimore and Norfolk, and it's going to China. Uh, and uh, so now U.S. Uh, uh, coke ovens are short coal. European coke ovens are short coal. Brazilian coke ovens are short coal. So Turkish coke ovens are short coal. Uh, so now, the you know, Met is at a very high price. I mean, it's... The Atlantic Basin Met Coal has gone up almost more than that you know, Australian index. I talked to a friend of mine who does this full time every day. I said, "Well, how high could that 350 index go to?" He said, "Oh, he said, I don't know, 400, 500." Uh, my friend is uh, does a lot of business in China. Um, he's a M&A investment banker. I said, "Well, what will China do?" He said, "As far as he can see, nothing." And of course. The agreement by the United States and the UK to work with Australia to provide them uh, nuclear submarines just makes the situation. So um, now this is not something that you can count on for long-term value, but as long as this altercation between China and Australia goes on, it's it's not going to be a you know. Be, there's nothing more volatile than net coal. Normally, it's a typhoon in Australia, and the typhoon goes through, and uh, they have problems. Their harbors aren't very well protected, but they can generally fix their docks in you know 60 days or something, and then their mines flood, and they have to get permission to pump their mines out and put it in rivers, which is hard to achieve. But generally, in 60 or 90 days, it gets fixed. This altercation between China and Australia has been going on now for a year, year and a half, and it's just, you know, it seems unfixable. Uh, whether or not uh, the European community makes a deal with Russia to get more, you know, to basically open up the Nord Stream pipeline, um, you know, I don't know. It's uh, it's a political thing. Uh, just the big net, uh, CF Industries, which is a large ammonia producer, has closed one, or they may have two ammonia plants in the UK. Ammonia is made from natural gas, and uh, they just kind of permanently closed them. Well, what they're going to do, they have huge ammonia operations in Louisiana where they can make the ammonia out of $5 gas rather than $25 gas, 
Well, it might be ammonia, and they'll ship it to the UK. Um, all kinds of dislocations are happening. Um, I think generally, uh, with regard to um, impact on businesses, um, very hard to the, the supply chain things, which were attributed to um, uh, you know demand coming back from COVID, being very difficult to. I mean, FedEx announced you know, disappointing earnings because they can't hire enough employees to do their package volume. Uh, there, there's all kinds of dislocations out there. And, you know, you when you talk to anecdotally to people who are trying to manage businesses and whatnot, there doesn't seem to be. There was this theory that when expanded unemployment benefits run out in September, somehow it gets better. But two things have happened. States number of states uh, stopped the expanded unemployment back in May, June, July, and they still have uh, problems with uh, finding enough employees or having to increase uh, compensation costs quite a lot. So it may be that the hangover from COVID is the supply chain issues, and certainly these will get cleared up in a year's time or year and a half's time or something. You know, a lot of these things will be rationalized or these these bouts between governments will, you know, get settled. But in the in the meantime, I think it's very important if you're holding 10 stocks or 11 stocks or 12 stocks, really reread the uh, 10 Qs and the investor slides and whatnot and make sure you're not in something where uh, it'll be hurt by uh, this kind of change, which may have a certain amount of permanence to it as we come out of COVID, where you know, there are 10 million jobs to be filled in the U.S. There's basically roughly 10 million people looking for jobs, but they don't they don't seem to uh, interconnect. And uh, with that, I've, I've, uh, I've more than used my half of the 30 minutes. Uh, Mike has uh, kind of a follow-up to uh, last week and, uh, and two new ones, which is just terrific. I know a lot of you went looking uh, through Diane's or Mike's email address to get his weekly notes and uh, I think that's a good thing to do. Uh, one th- one comment before uh, Mike gets in to follow up on last week and this the two companies for this week. I I've just scanned in the last 30, 40 minutes just cash flow statements for these companies and Michael cover off and did last week that the revenues are growing and the marketing's growing and and the revenues will still grow if you curtail the marketing. So you're adjusting the cash flow and the earnings and whatnot. For not having as much marketing. I mean, that that is very prevalent kind of thinking. Uh, uh, my son and his partner do that with a lot of the companies. I'm a little bit more old school. I want to see something that's growing where uh, there is free cash flow. But with that, uh, turn it over to Mike to cover the uh, cover uh, cover the, the the two companies from last week and the two new companies this week. So over to you, Mike. Hi, Hunt. Thank you. And yeah, so last week we covered Asana and Monday.com, both of which um, are software as a service. I I think the the thing to think about, and Brian R. looks at this stuff as well, um, I think that SaaS companies, enterprise SaaS companies have been probably, my thesis at least, is that they've been kind of long-term undervalued because 
like Hunt said, it's difficult to value the growth. Now, there are some of the metrics and stuff that I've, I've shown in our newsletter, kind of talk through some of the things to think about and, and why it makes sense. Um, but it is, it, the, these are relative valuations at the end of the day. This isn't necessarily a fundamental um, bottom-up cash flow valuation. And, and with these quickly growing companies, it's hard to come by. But I, I think if you can't boil it down and simplify it into something that, 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 uh, is very, very simple to understand, then it, it's probably too complex to consider. I think when it comes to these sales and marketing expenditures, the justification, the simplif- simplified justification is that if I can put $1 in and get $2 out the other end, then I'm going to do that. And that's an arbitrage opportunity. And I should pump as much money into sa- uh, sales and marketing as possible. And with that, let's move on to um, to this week. I, I picked two companies this week that are app companies. So you can get the, their products in the app store on Google or on Apple. Um, and before we jump into them, um, I want to talk just real quick an update on the Apple versus Epic case. We've talked about that in a few months since we talked about it. Um, the long story short, it was that it was a big win for Apple. Um, essentially, Judge uh, Gonzalez Rogers confirmed that Apple is justified in requiring um, IAP for in-app purchases. However, the judge did issue an injunction banning Apple's anti-steering position, which is sort of it was sort of a confusing piece to the case. It was sort of un- unexpected, um, but essentially, Apple can't stop a developer from telling its users that they can go outside the app to another platform to acquire digital content. So maybe this somewhat dense Apple's um, moat, if you will, when it comes to apps. But my understanding is that Apple's entitled to charge its for, uh, you know, for use of IAP for all revenue generated in the app. So this doesn't really change their reach. Now it may change politically the way they decide to collect those revenues, but the fact that they charged a payment processing fee um, as a way to capture that value um you know, now, now apps are going to be able to go outside it. That won't stop Apple from saying, hey, you still have to pay me 30% of all revenue generated inside the app. So it's an interesting case. I think the most important thing and interesting thing that I gleaned from it is that gaming constitutes the majority of App Store revenue. So we've got about 10 minutes. So I'll try to spend five minutes on Bumble and five minutes on Duolingo. Bumble operates two apps, Bumble and Badoo, uh, but Bumble is the app that is most popular and growing. The Bumble app was launched in 2014 to address antiquated gender norms and a lack of kindness and accountability on the internet. Um, by placing women at the center where women make the first move, Bumble is building a platform designed to be safe and empowering for women and in turn provide a better environment for everyone. If it isn't entirely clear, Bumble isn't a dating app. It is the... The smaller player, the, the major player in, in dating apps is a company called The Match Group. Um, they have quite a few different dating apps underneath their umbrella, most importantly, Tinder, which is actually where the founder of Bumble comes from. The founder of Bumble, her name is Whitney Wolf Heard. She essentially identified something that other dating apps had failed to properly grasp. And that is, uh, for better lack of a better term, the fact that women are ultimately the product in these apps and therefore should have a different user experience than males on the app. So she essentially made this app to be more tailored to the way the woman wants to interact with it. Um, so online dating has rapidly increased in popularity and is now 
by far the most common way heterosexual couples meet. It's been that way since uh, maybe 2012 or 13, um, surpassing the longtime leader uh, met through friends as the, the way couples meet. It's kind of an exciting company, growing quickly, lots of revenue, monetizing very well. Um, but I, I actually think there's some things about the market that are a little bit concerning. The, the size of the market is relatively limited. Um, Bumble references in its own S1 statement some research by uh, OCNC strategy consultants that value the 20 market as of 2020 at $2 billion in North America and $5.3 billion globally, growing at a cager of 11 and 13% respectively, which means it's not really that large of a market. Now, they could prove us wrong by doing a better job at monetizing because dating apps have historically not monetized well. But if you take the enterprise value of both Bumble and the Match Group, it equals roughly 10x the global 2020 market. So kind of one way to just think about and look at the uh, um, the size of these companies. So uh, like I mentioned, Bumble was founded by Whitney Wolf Hurd. She was actually a former Tinder co-founder and vice president of marketing there. She sued the company alleging sexual harassment and wrongly stripping her of her co-founder title. I think her story is fascinating. There's plenty of articles um, and uh, Bloomberg has some good coverage of this, of the story, you know, essentially rather than mope about her unfortunate situation of, of, uh, at, at Tinder, she wound up starting Bumble and built essentially a better dating app. The IPO was February 11th earlier this year, quite successful. Uh, the bankers upped the price of the IPO about 50% from an initial range to meet fierce demand for the shares. And on day one, the share skyrocketed 63% on the first day of trading. The CEO, Whitney Wolf Hurd, is, at 31 years old, is now the world's youngest self-made female billionaire. Since the IPO, the stock's down 26%, though it is still above the initial offering price. From a valuation perspective, I'm just going to go hit some high-level numbers. The enterprise value per user is somewhere between 150 and 177. I kind of gleaned that by pulling some information from the S1 and the latest quarterly filing. They've got over 40 million users, and 2.9 million of them are paying. I think that puts their percentage of paying users at around uh, 7%, if I remember right. Uh, each user is spending approximately... So that's kind of gives you an idea of of the spend per person as far as a a monetized user. Uh, Another thing to note is that the company has been cash flow positive both in 2019 and 2020, and more likely than not will be cash flow positive this year as well. On the risk side, I think the thing that pops out to me the most is the size of the market and the fact that the company has attempted to branch outside of just dating with some things for connecting professionals and for connecting friends, but they failed uh, so far to really gain much traction with any of those. Okay. So let's move on to Duolingo. Duolingo is another consumer app. However, it's focused on an entirely different segment, uh, education. The company's mission is to develop the best education in the world and make it universally available. Duolingo launched in 2012 and has since become the leading mobile learning platform globally with over 500 million downloads. The flagship Duolingo app has organically become the world's most popular way to learn languages and the top grossing app in the education category on both Google Play and the Apple App Store. Beyond the Duolingo language app, they also have an app called Duolingo 
English test, which is the English proficiency test, currently accepted by over 30,000 higher education institutions globally. And then a new one called Duolingo ABC, which is an app designed to teach uh, early literary, literacy skills to children aged, aged three to six. Education technology is notoriously hard, uh, notoriously hard space to build a company um, because sales cycles typically tend to be uh, slow with schools and universities. Language learning, on the other hand, can be quite lucrative. Uh, you may remember, if you're familiar with the space, a company called Rosetta Stone. It was a publicly, publicly traded stock for over a decade, um, shortly after a nearly 40% pop on the first day of trading in 2009, the price sank and never meaningfully recovered. And the company actually went private in 2020. Uh, Rosetta Stone was a PC-based and eventually became a web-based language learning app. Duolingo takes a slightly different approach. I mean, it's definitely a mobile-first product. They use uh, gamification it's, uh, to make language learning exciting and keep bringing you back to the app. So I think there's a lot of uh, positive attribution of some of the gaming technology to education that could be to played in other areas. Duolingo claims its core competencies are engineering, A-B testing, data analytics, product design, gamification, personalization, and assessment. Very clearly makes the point that these are applicable not only to language learning, but also other subjects. So that sort of lays the case for growth into future, into more markets. The Duolingo IPO, um, let's see, according to TechCrunch, proves that the public market investors see the long-term value of a mission-driven, technology-powered education company. Historically, few ed tech companies have successfully listed publicly. The company's stock has been on a tear since its IPO in July and is currently up about 45% since its first day of trading. Just to break in, what we're trying to do is, uh, and I think it's rather useful, is to find companies that didn't have to go public because they needed to raise money. Uh, as Mike is, if you look at the balance sheets for these companies, oh, so they would, you know, raise some money on the offering. But these are basically bulletproof capitalizations, all, all, all four companies. Uh, and uh, I'd rather see them be cash flow positive after marketing. But I think what we're, first of all, in addition to the dozen companies you own or 10 companies you own, you always have to be on the lookout for new ones. And these, these four companies and the other ones Mike's come up with are worth monitoring, not necessarily, uh, you know, taking up anything like a full position, but monitor because uh, these businesses that can generate more cash than they use and grow, uh, are where, where you want to uh, have your equity investment. And, uh, I've been amazed at how Mike has been able to uh, sort through recent IPOs and come up with these things. Uh, I was explaining to Vivian, who works with me here at Yorktown, I said, "Oh my goodness, we to follow these things, we'll have to uh, we'll have to uh, have skinny what, what we call skinny ten uh, Qs. In other words, you can't print all the notes because if you want to keep track of them, uh, and Mike keeps coming up with two a week." That's, uh, that's a hundred a year. You know, pretty soon that's going to be a pretty thick folder. Uh, but, uh, 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 I think you learn. The other thing is by looking at these things, you learn, you learn things that will help you with the investments you hold. So I told Mike earlier, as I read these 10 Qs and whatnot, the one I'm most intrigued with, uh, when I go through the 630 10 Qs is NVIDIA because NVIDIA just, just, you know, 
nice cash flow and covers all their R&D, covers all their uh, cash flow. Now, more mature company, but, you know, if, if you only own two or three or four things like NVIDIA or Fastmail or whatnot in your investment career, you know, you'll do very, very well. With that, we'll get some closing comments from Mike. Yeah, so the, the only other thing I'd, yeah, first of all, mention just to compare Duolingo to Bumble, it's more expensive on a per-user basis if you look at the enterprise value comparison. Uh, the other thing that I would mention is that reading the, these, the, the SEC filings is really important. If you, if you read these two companies' filings, you'll come away with you know, your essential reading between the lines, how simply and how straightforward everything's laid out. Um, I, I think the Bumble ones is kind of confusing, and it's partly because Blackstone is a major shareholder and board member on uh, Bumble. And because of that, they have a complex structure. They have their financial statements are kind of complex and obscure. The Duolingo one, on the other hand, reads very straightforward. So there are just this practice of going through and reading these documents and not not just relying on the news sources and stuff like that can, can really hone your ability to uh, read the between the lines, if you will. With that, I have a I have about one minute left. I was listening to uh, Bloomberg and uh, talk about China, and uh, they had uh, uh, Rabini in, you know, who who predicted. Uh, I guess takes credit for predicting what happened in 08. He's pretty negative, and uh, and then they had Ray Dalio come on. Uh, they were having uh, they put Tom Keene up in Greenwich. They're having some kind of a Connecticut forum or something, and and. Uh, Oh, Ray Dalio came on. I didn't catch very much of it, but there are a couple of things that he said uh, uh, about China. I don't own anything that uh, that is basically Chinese-based, and I don't plan to. But he made a couple of interesting points, and let me fill out the remaining minute or so with the points. He said, it's the two largest economies. You can't ignore China, despite what they're doing. He said, take gaming. Uh, we're a liberal economy or a liberal society. If our kids are spending too much time on games, on you know apps, as, as Mike says, it's you know like three quarters of the Apple App Store, and certainly what Epic is. Uh, we rely on the parents or the kids themselves or teachers or whatnot uh, to uh, try to have them spend less time with computer games. In China, the state takes the view that uh, they uh, they have a responsibility here. So uh, whether it be Tencent or other gaming companies, they, they're, they're, they're more or less mandating that they uh, not allow, uh, you know, a teenager or a sub-teenager uh, more than a couple hours a week of gaming. I'm not quite sure how they do that from a technical point of view, but that's, that's what their, uh, their, uh, their direction is. So, uh, and then in, in well, the final thing that Dalio said that I thought was fun, that he said, look, uh, Deng Xiaoping was, you know, who really opened up the thing uh, in a famous comment, which I hadn't remembered until he mentioned it. He said, look, he said, uh, the two societies are different. But he said, if you have two cats and one's black and one's white, uh, but they both uh, they both uh, uh, keep the rodents away. Uh, both systems work. So uh, uh, I, I I thought that was a you know when we 
when we get concerned about our holdings or about how our economy's going, how our capital market's going because of things going on in China, I think I think I think that I I I don't really agree that you want to have like a third of your portfolio in China. I mean, maybe that's the right thing for Bridgewater to do, which I guess is pretty close to the world's largest hedge fund. But I, I just don't see how that makes sense. On the other hand, I don't think whether it's impact on commodities like oil and whatnot or impact on capital markets like Evergreen, I think it's, it may, it, it, it's better to stay fairly relaxed about the impact on capital markets and whatnot. Uh, uh, China. Now, a lot of you on the phone know I've, I've always steered away. I've owned Google and, and Amazon, and I kind of like the idea that they're not too dependent on China. I've avoided Apple because Apple makes almost all its equipment in China. That has been a mistake. I mean, not that Amazon didn't go up a lot and Google didn't go up a lot, but Apple has been a terrific stock. But, uh, I, I, uh, I think that, uh, we shouldn't get too exercised over, you know, an uh, over-levered property developer in China. I, I, I think that will get worked through. And uh, uh, I think that, uh, you know, that the uh, I also don't think, I mean, one of, one of Mike's holdings is Taiwan Semiconductor. I don't think we should get uh, spooked by the idea that the Chinese are so nationalistic that they will wind up with some kind of a, military invasion of Taiwan or whatnot. I mean, you know, anything can happen, but those kinds of things shouldn't really impact our our, uh, our investment views very much. With that, we're over. Uh, everyone uh, take care for the next week, and uh, we'll all uh, look forward to talk to you next Wednesday. Take care. Thank you for joining us this week. Please tune in to us again next week as we'll be back on Wednesday. As a reminder, nothing on this podcast should be considered investment advice. You should always do your own work to determine if an investment is suitable for you.